Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. You are listening to Missed Apex Podcast. We live F1. Welcome to Missed Apex Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Spanners Ready, and I'm joined by Matt Two Rumpets. Matt, thanks for joining me again on this fine lockdown evening slash afternoon slash morning for our tricontinental podcast today. I know, tricontinental. It's amazing. You know, I saw you Thursday for Remain Indoors. I saw you Friday for iRacing. Oh, yeah. And somehow a morning of trigonometry with my daughter and it seems like at least a week and a half since we last spoke that's that's the thing with kids they're terrible and their time sucks and time never seems to pass i too have been doing much less complicated mathematics with my children but have been equally perplexed and frustrated and saddened by fractions and remembering what the top one does and what the bottom one does and how to add them together and such like Uh, we had fractions in the denominator today and radians at the same time. It was the worst. Enough of this nonsense. You can join us for the Remain Indoors podcast on Monday at 2 p.m. UK time for stuff like that. Now is the time for F1 stuff. And we can tell you that we are an independent podcast produced in the podcasting shed with the kind permission of our better halves. We aim to bring you a race review before your Monday morning commute or a news show before your Monday morning walk to the shed. Or you can, you can listen over breakfast. Look, the rules are off. Listen when you want. We might be wrong, but we're first. We're also joined by journalist, PR man, and all-round knower of things, Chris Stevens. How's it going, Chris? It's going great, Spanners. It feels like so long since I've been on the show, but uh, in in the time away that I've had, I've been super busy, as viewers of the live stream will see. Right, Chris has got himself finally a steering wheel at home that you've clamped to your desk 
and you've been setting about doing some laps of the Nordschleife today, turning a wheel on, I, I can't remember what game it was. Something GT like, Sport. GT Sport, which is not iRacing. Is, like, is that like more of a gamey game? Is it on an no, no. Amiga 64? No, it is considered more of a sim. Um, I don't know how how much of a sim, not compared to iRacing, but it runs for the PS4. And so I just wanted to run some laps on the Nordschleife that I didn't have to pay for. But you're doing what I always tell people in the panel to do and listeners out there. For goodness sake, if you're going to be a motorsport fan, go and turn a wheel. And you've got yourself a relatively inexpensive wheel. Uh, It was a Logitech G29. Yes, it was. And you've been able to turn some laps and have some fun relatively cheaply. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's all really good actually, and a lot of these um, sim games on PS4 are going like cheapest chips at the moment as well. So good time to invest. Fantastic! And joining us from the other side of the world, it's our video producer who creates the lovely graphics in the shed and all the glorious iRacing action from uh, Friday night. It's Steve, Amy. G'day, Steve. G'day, Spanners. <laughs> Uh, welcome from Down Under. It's uh, early in the morning down here, but looking forward to a wonderful sunny day. Now, I normally, like, when you say, oh, oh I had to wake up at like three o'clock to do the show, and you did today, you woke up at 3am to come and join us on the podcast, so thank you. Normally, I, if that was a normal human, I would feel sympathy. For some reason, when it's an Aussie, I'm like, ha, ah, good, <laughs> I'm glad you had to get up at 3am. Oh, you're just um, hemispherist, is what you are. You <laughs> don't like anybody who who is upside down. Don't pretend. Don't pretend that you weren't just finishing off a barbecue from the day before, and then all you did was just roll from the Barbie to your desk and then start podcasting with us. <laughs> oh, I wish that were true. No, I uh, woke up in anticipation of doing this wonderful live stream. Amazing. So that's our panel today. It's Matt Trumpet's. Chris Stevens and Steve Amy. Now, Chris Stevens later on is going to talk to us about some of the realities of being a motorsport journalist on the on the road and some of the mechanics of journalism. Chris Stevens, of course, a graduate of the Autosport Academy program. And Steve Amy is not a hobbyist uh, video producer in, in any way, shape or form. He is a professional video man. And we've got a bunch of questions from our Slack group and Twitter. Uh, and we're going to have a general discussion about F1 broadcasting. Now, uh, we'll forgo the big dirty news bumper as this morning the F1 world woke up to the sad news that F1 legend Sir Sterling Moss had passed away at the age of 90. Uh, A big personality was Sir Sterling Moss within our sport. And I'm not going to sit here and pretend to you that I understood completely his era or that I have an encyclopedic knowledge of, of his time and his effect on motorsport at the time. But what I can tell you is I know full well the effect that he's had on the generation above me. So seeing Martin Brundle warmly tweet about someone who had walked him through his his early days in motorsport, and also thinking back to the documentary he did with Lewis Hamilton, driving side by side in their Mercedes across the banking, in, in the old banking in Monza, and seeing the awe uh, with which Lewis Hamilton held him. And then also seeing them in those vehicles that looked like rocket ships on wheels, making you realize that these guys were truly pioneers. You go, these guys, they were real, real daredevils. You know, it's from a period where you really can't compare with the modern drivers and you can't put the modern drivers in that situation. 
because you don't know which one which ones of the modern drivers would be up for it. Um, but without doubt, Sir Sterling Marsh has made a massive impression on F1, Matt. Uh, certainly from a British point of view, we hold him in a certain regard. Uh, how is he seen over in the US? Uh, it's funny, you know, you mentioned Martin Brundle. Uh, having that impact, like helping you to understand the place that he holds in the history, not just of Formula One, but all of motorsport. For me, it was Mario Andretti. That was the guy I watched when I was a kid. I saw him in IndyCar. I saw him in Formula One in the early 70s. And his tweet was, this guy was my hero. Yeah. So that's the generation we're talking post-World War II. And just as I am fond of doing, I'm trying to bring just a couple of numbers to help people sort it out. Uh, across all of his races, he was 212 out of 529 in victories, including the 1955 Mille Amelia, which was a 1,000-mile, 10-hour race held across a single day. And his Formula One wow. career started, I believe, in 1951, but he really came of um, he really came to the fore in 1955 when he raced with Mercedes and Fangio. And I think, Chris, you have something you'd like to add to that? Well, I think the reason that he is considered a legend of, of motorsport, not just because of the um, the, the success he had um, in, in Formula One, but the success he had outside of the world championship, especially because this is back in the days when non-championship events were still a thing. And, and as you mentioned, the, the vast majority of different things he took his hand to, sports car racing, rallying, uh, saloon car racing that he was successful in in every single area now steve uh, you watched uh, sir sterling moss on his debut uh, how, how did you find the action back then uh, obviously steve you are you are a generation a step ahead of of my good self um you know how how did his effect on formula one translate uh, in australia Okay, that's a little difficult for me to say, um, really, because I'm a latecomer to car racing. I didn't get involved in car racing until I was like 22 or 23, and that's when I fell in love with it. But during the 60s um, and early 70s, there were two racing car drivers that I did hear of. One was Jack Bradham, obviously, because he was an Australian and, an, and a local hero, but the other driver and the only other driver that I heard of during the 60s was about Sterling Moss. Um, and he was renowned in those days, not only for being a fast and hard and fair racer, but uh, he raced in all sorts of categories. He wasn't just a Formula One racer. He did sports cars. He did the Mille Miglia a few times. And in fact, the, um, the book written by his then navigator, Jenkinson, um, is a great read about how this young, you know, man in the 60s had uh, drove the 1,000 miles in 10 hours. You know, his average speed, and you've got to remember the Mille Miglia, is driven along rough coastal roads through villages, and, uh, and uh, he did it in 10 hours. He was a legend in that time. So, yes, he was the only other driver that I'd ever heard of, um, you know, during the 60s. And a lot of people will label him as the greatest Formula One driver not to win the World Championship. But all these things that we've just been listing, he is so much more than than that. And I think, you know, the reason that he's so highly regarded in, in this country, in Britain, is because, you know, he was the big British athlete in motor racing um, at the time. And uh, if he didn't have the unfortunate 
um, circumstance of being teammates with one man, well, Fangio, then he would have won two or three titles. In fact, I believe he finished runner-up to Fangio three times. Um, out of the four, he, he, he was second. And when you talk about how important he was to British racing, it's hard to overstate that. Once Mercedes withdrew from racing, he went on to exclusively race British cars, um, Van Walls, Coopers, BRMs, and particularly Lotus. Notably, um, in Argentina in 58, he won the for the first race ever won by a mid-engined Formula One car, which is where the design ultimately wound up going for everyone. That was for Rob Walker. His 61 wins in Monaco in the Lotus 18, which is the previous year's car, and again at the Nürburgring against the Shark Nose of Ferrari, also are two legendary races that people talk about. But if it comes to me and comes to Moss, the other way he's made the hugest impact has to be his sportsmanship, in particular defending Mike Hawthorne when he would have won the championship had he not. Hawthorne spun. He was accused of putting his car in reverse. Moss came out and said no. He was steering downhill to bump start the car. Without those points, Hawthorne doesn't win the championship. Moss does. Moss could not let it lie. He went to the stewards without being asked and defended him. So this is why people talked about him up until this day and why he's so important for our sport. And, and maybe just as an, a note to maybe some of our younger viewers who who don't know about what Formula One was was like um, back in the fifties. Obviously, we all know it was a very dangerous time. But you know, of course, it was an era where teams would bring more than two cars to uh, to races. Obviously, it's now in the regulations; it has to be two cars. But Mercedes had four or five back then when when Fangio and Mossberg were driving for them. So and some people can always kind of assume that, oh, well, he was the second best Mercedes, therefore that's that's nothing special, but at, he was the best of you know, five. Thanks very much for that, guys. And looking at the chat room, there's comments from uh, Corolla, best driver not to win the championship, uh, and an outpouring of, of grief and appreciation for uh, an F1 character. And I think it's not controversial to say an F1, certainly a British F1 legend. Thank you to everybody in the live chat room. Uh, you can join them by going to YouTube, searching for Missed Apex Podcast. You can join our live chat as we're talking, as Cadenath has, Anders, uh, Nothkey, DJ, Jimmy, and Michael so far in the chat room, Christopher and Anders and John and Othnell. Welcome to the chat room. Go and subscribe to us on YouTube. We're at nearly eight thousand subscribers and that would be a lovely target to hit during the lockdown um it's time for a bit more big dirty news though big dirty news well there has been a lot of news because everybody kind of just battened down the hatches when, all right, what's going on here? Is the first race going to be Europe? Are we just going to the European races? Oh, no, 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 no. And now we're kind of settled into this. Let's not think about it for a while. Let's manage the lockdown. Let's see how we can survive. And then, of course, Canada uh, has officially been cancelled, something we talked about with Matthew Carter last Sunday and something we've got a bit more news on as well. Uh, but now, Matt, we're seeing the, the real responses to the teams as it's no longer a case of we're skipping a few races and then we'll see you all in, uh, you know, smoke me a kipper and I'll see you at Paul Ricard. They're actually having to now go, ooh, we need to survive 
we need to survive through all of this. And I think we went through last week which teams we thought were in trouble. And I think Williams is going to be the top of every list. Two years ago, they struggled to get to testing. Claimed it wasn't about money in any way, shape or form. Something which precisely 17 people worldwide believed and their money issues have been well publicised. So not surprising to see that they're the first team to make a real big, drastic, bold move to survive. Yeah, and this apparently, uh, according to Claire Williams, was underway as far back as December of 19 in terms of they sold at Williams Advanced Engineering. Very clearly, regardless of what they said about money, the team, the Formula One team itself, was in dire straits. So they sold advanced engineering and they made a commercial deal with uh, Latifi's dad, who uh, uh, Latris Racing is the actual entity that the deal is made with. And they borrowed money from him. They got a loan and they put up, amongst other things, their entire collection of Formula One cars throughout their whole history. But that's not all. They've gone ahead and mortgaged the land their factory is built on and the buildings and the equipment in their factory as well in order to properly capitalize and participate in Formula One. And this was all done sort of before, I think, to a large extent, this crisis hit. So it's not a surprise to see that their workers are furloughed. And as at Haas and at Renault and at McLaren, the junior workers are furloughed and collecting 80% of their pay from the UK government, which is a very nice thing that the government does. And the senior staff are continuing to work, but with pay cuts. And that's kind of where we are right now. Uh, Steve, uh, Steve, what have you done? Steve, why are you in Chris's old bedroom? Well, you know, money's tight at the moment, you know, with uh, this pandemic. And I saw this uh, cheap room come on the market. And so I took it. And unfortunately, the, the previous owner has left it in a god-awful mess, but it's cheap and it's cheerful. Okay, so for those on the audio, okay, Chris has haunted me for the last three years with the background of his bedroom and of a cabinet that he refused to tidy and a wonky bookshelf. He's finally got rid of it. And by the way, yes, chat room, he is taunting me with his background of the Monaco pit lane. Boo, you're doing that just to hurt me. Uh, but Steve has now replaced his green screen from his Aussie uh, background that he had to Chris's bedroom. How do you even do that? How do you make that magic happen? <laughs> it's called a button in Zoom. You press the just press the right button. There's a, there's uh, a, a Chris's bedroom. Button. I have a question about. I have a question for Matt about Williams. Given that Williams is a publicly traded company these days, what's happened to the share price? Well, I've not been tracking the share price, but in general, um, shares have lost. 30 to 50% of their value. I mean, I know Liberty price is tanked and I don't expect that to recover anytime soon because how do you price value back into a sport that's not happening? And the things that Williams had that made money, uh, the, the MGUK, their advanced engineering have now been sold off. So the good news is they're capitalized. They're sitting on a lot of cash. This is probably a good time to have been sitting on a lot of cash, but the question is, what is their burn rate going to be versus when the sport starts back up? And can they find the sponsors to keep themselves going? Because they're running out of, uh, well, limbs to saw off to keep themselves in business, so to speak. It definitely feels a little bit like you've sold Mayfair, uh, you know, you sold hotels on, on Mayfair and Park Lane 
I don't actually that's not going to translate internationally, is it? Everyone's got different monopoly squares. Seems seems like they've sold hotels off the purple ones to keep the brown ones going. Old Kent Road in the UK monopoly set. Uh, what concerns me here is they seem to have really sold their future almost. So it's a desperate move to to put your only money making. And I don't know if I'm, I'm guessing there a little bit, but advanced engineering was making money, but not costing money, which I'm assuming the F1 outfit uh, was, uh, sorry, was losing money. So if they've lost that revenue generation, are they just completely now in the hands of Latris Racing, the Latifi's father's company, to to be funded? So if Latifi goes away, is that the end of, or they have to latch onto another billionaire? This just seems desperate. It seems it, this is horrible as uh, as a Williams fan. Well, it's structured as a loan, so that means that as long as they make payments, they will be okay to continue. But what it means is they have to be able to run at least revenue neutral, I think would be the correct term. I'm not really a business person because I play the instrument with the three buttons, if you know what I mean. The but my one. understanding is if they can keep the money coming in the door and going out roughly the same, they should be okay to continue. If they can't, then Latifi is in a position where he might he will be able to claim assets and or possibly control of the business. And then we would have Team Latifi versus Team Stroll. Okay, look, let's be let's be clear on the timelines because you're saying that this was apparently all before the recent troubles. I mean, I didn't I didn't hear anything about that, which you know I'm not very observant, so that doesn't necessarily mean anything. However, uh, the timing does look bad. Are we, are we sure that this is not a, a linked thing that they were always going to be in trouble in 2020, or is it the loss of revenue hastening things? Uh, the loss of revenue to me would complicate things, according to the article that I read in the in- link. internet out here. The internet autosport. Oh, um, okay. They were just. It was a discussion that started in December nineteen, according to Claire Williams. Yeah, and now Chris. I, I mean, I don't want to be unkind to Williams. In fact, Steve, Steve, I don't want to be unkind to Williams. But when they were clearly running out of money in twenty eighteen, at the beginning of that season, they were going, no, 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 nothing to see here. Well, it obviously was. So I hope that, you know, I'm not opening us up to litigation here, but I don't think that Williams necessarily, uh, I think they maybe downplay the financial issues they have. I think that that goes without saying. They've been in dire financial straits for a few years now. Um, and I don't think that uh, as much as, you know, I respect Claire for the job she's trying to do. I don't think that she has the wherewithal to be able to manage the organisation out of the situation it's in. And they need some smart financial people in there to make it work. Uh, my other question is, with the Latifi involvement now in um, Formula One, fairly heavy, and remember that he also owns a part of McLaren, is this you know, representative of a Canadian takeover of the whole business? Yeah, that's a good point, actually, isn't it? What, is, what are they doing in Canada? Is there the, the billionaires club or their private schools have like carting tracks in there or something? So they're all growing up, all these Canadian billionaires, wanting to take over Formula One, Chris? I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, obviously, Latifi and Stroll Jr. were coming through the ranks at roughly the same sort of time, despite actually, in motorsport terms, there's quite a big age gap between them, I think, um, maybe maybe four years. Um, so they would have raced together a little bit, um, but not so much, especially when Stroll kind of jumped up from, from F3. 
while Latifi spent a few years in, in, in GP2, F2. But I would not be surprised if there was a rivalry between uh, two of Canada's most wealthy families. I don't know, Matt. I mean, we're going to go down the list in a little while of the of the teams that are in a little bit of trouble, uh, ripe for the taking, as as Matthew Carter said last week. You know, he he was saying, you know, not only Williams, but he reckoned Gene Haas would accept an offer if somebody was to come in and take one. Are there more Canadian billionaire children around the corner? Like, what's Haas going to be called this time next year? Uh, probably Haas, because who would buy it? Why? Why you? Why would you? I mean, like, what price would he? Well, he at least has a capitalization to take the team back racing when racing happens again. Uh, I I don't know. Like, who would invest in a Formula One team? Maybe maybe Ross from Miami who wanted to race. Maybe he'll buy a team instead. Possibly. So, uh, speaking of Matthew Carter, just a reminder. Uh, no, it's not a reminder. It's an announcement, isn't it? Okay, so uh, Matthew Carter suggested he would come on to Missed Apex podcast with Joe Saywood. And I think a lot of people who have been uh, listeners to Missed Apex for some time uh, would consider that a, a dream meeting of minds. And I always wondered how it how it would work. And I don't know why I have not pulled the trigger earlier, but I've asked both parties involved and they're both up for coming and speaking together in the shed with me and Matt next Sunday, which is April the something something, I don't know, like 19th, something like that. It's next Sunday anyway. So they'll be here in the shed and um, they have spoken together publicly once at one of the audiences with Joe because Joe does these audiences before Grand Prix, invites you to sit there, ask questions. Joe gets through 17 uh, bottles of wine and answers your questions at length. It's a great time. One time, Matthew Carter was in the audience and Joe spotted him and said, oh, you come up here as well, Mr. Carter. And it went on for significantly longer than it was supposed to. So that's one not to miss next week. For those of you who are fans of an audience with Joe, uh, we are doing a virtual audience with Joe. And it is a Joe Sayward production. It is simply being produced out of the offices of Missed Apex Podcast. And by offices, I mean this shed uh, and and me. So I'm just helping Joe put these live audiences together. We're going to keep them as close as we can to uh, to the live audience, uh, to the live audience experience all over Zoom conferencing, which people are getting more and more familiar with now. The first one is on Tuesday, and we've kept it small so that I can make all the mistakes. And um, uh, and that is sold out now. We sold 20 seats for that. Loads of interest. We're going to open it up to a much bigger audience next time. So look out here and on Joe's publications for the next virtual audience with Joe. I was just going to say longer than supposed to. That's kind of like a specialty of ours by now, isn't it? No, that's a specialty of yours, Matt. I have a very strict limit for, for all the shows we do, I say 60 minutes, Mr. Apex Podcast, 60 minutes. Listeners, when was the last time your podcast player downloaded a show under 60 minutes? I don't think it's ever happened. Remain indoors, 45 minutes. And it's all, you, we, we shouldn't assign blame, but it's definitely all your fault. Exactly. And there's a suggestion from Pete Jenkins that we should call it Diaries of an F1 Uncle, the Joe Sayward and Matthew Carter Show. Deal. Let's, let's definitely, let's definitely call it that. I mean, Matt, we, we could go through the the list of the F1 teams that are in trouble. I mean, they're all doing much the same thing. Haas, Renault, McLaren, those kind of suspects. 
they're they're basically going into their hibernation for for, the, for want of a better word. Yeah, and Reno as well, uh, where it's being discussed as um, and racing point. So pretty much every team. I don't know about Mercedes, uh, Ferrari. I think to a certain extent, um, Red Bull. I'm not sure about. But the smaller teams, up to and including Renault, all definitively have uh, furloughed the staff. They call it enforced absence. And at Renault, interestingly enough, it's not just Instone, it's Viri as well, where they make the engines. They've gone to a part-time schedule and they're rotating staff. I think partly that's just due to space restrictions, trying to keep people safe, but also because they're not selling engines. Like, nobody's doing anything, right? It's, everything is just kind of paused, so... It's 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 definitely tough times, and I believe, if I'm remembering correctly, um, Zach Brown was saying that if F1 doesn't handle this crisis correctly, they could lose up to four teams uh, from the grid. Now, a little bit of me wants to say that's like saying, well, if I don't make the first turn, then I won't finish the race. But it is a time of high peril for Formula One, and I think for a lot of sport as well. Steve, just before I go to your follow-up, just to answer the chat room there. Sorry, DJ, I forgot to say, no, the virtual audiences with Steve are not streamed on YouTube. You'll only get access to it if you are part of the Zoom call. So you buy your ticket for the Zoom call, and then that's it. You're locked in a private call with Uncle Joe. Uh, Speaking of uh, F1 uncles, Uncle Steve. (laughs) I was just going to make a comment about Renault. Uh, Matt, you said that, um, you know, they... They're not selling any engines so that, you know, there's no income from all of that. My comment is they'd better get used to it because from next year they don't have any customer teams anyway. So they're not going to be selling any engines to anybody. So maybe now they should be, you know, streamlining their very engine center uh, to be, you know, more efficient for themselves only. You may indeed have a point there, but I could easily see them selling engines again. And a lot of that staff is also involved in, I would imagine, development, which the engine manufacturers were negotiating with the FIA to have their own set of regulations to help hold costs down even before this happened. Um, who do you see them selling engines to? Uh, Williams, Haas, if they if they if they have a break with Ferrari. I mean, I mean, there are teams out there that need engines. Well, sure, but they're all contracted to, yeah. you know, the large manufacturers who make better engines than Renault, really. I have to say, I'm with Steve there. Which team in their right mind, unless they really had their hand forced, would, would want to go to Renault? So we've seen their one customer team turn tail and run. And frankly, in the whole, I'm going to say it, everyone drink turbo hybrid era, Renault, frankly, their reputation has been dragged through the dirt, only only mildly saved by Honda coming in, but now Honda seem to have the jump on them as well. Um, but they were dumped by Red Bull, dumped by Toro Rosso, dumped by McLaren. This is a one-way trip, Matt. No one is now going to go, do you know what really turn our season around? An underpowered Renault F1 engine. Hey, Williams, would you like to get engines for half the price you're paying to Mercedes and have more freedom as a result? Oh, okay. So I don't know. I mean, I mean, they could sell it if they wanted to. If you're going to make excellent points, I don't, I'm going to go to the other old grumpy person, ah, Steve. Ah, ah. Well, I guess um, if, if they're going to sell it at half the price and they're going to make a loss at, you know, for their engine development, particularly if they've only got one team, then perhaps they could sell on to another team. But since all F1 you know, teams are in the, the game to win, 
it seems kind of weird for them, you know, for other teams to take a step back and say, we'll take an engine that isn't as good. Um, it would only be forced by economic situation, I guess. And I guess Williams are close to that. So maybe you are right. Uh, they have, it's happened before. Renault has supplied them before. And I will point out that the what's in it for Renault is going to be the data from the extra cars is tremendously useful to them. So, you know, it, it doesn't look like a good choice right now, but it could absolutely happen in the future. Oh, I don't know. I think Williams becoming Williams Renault again, uh, which, by the way, re- reminds me of, you know, uh, an F1 replay we watched, uh, which I'll get to later. Um, I don't think it's going to be the same. I, I don't think we're going to have the, the glory days. I think that would be a sign of almost complete capitulation. Uh, and I think for some time, if we just circle back to Williams, they have really now become completely dependent on wealthy individuals keeping them afloat. And 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 they are they are making decisions that are helping in the short term. And each short term decision they have made has put them further down this terrible road that they found themselves on. So, you know, they've they've when they're going to stroll partly, I mean, that robs you of a development driver that robs you of crucial data when you essentially only had one driver giving you useful input. You throw Sorokin in there as well. You now have a race team where a completely demotivated engineering force, yes, they're being paid by the investment uh, from those two drivers and those two drivers' sponsors and families, but they're, they're doing work that isn't being reflected on the track. And they go downhill and they take another downhill step. The same with Kubitsa's money. And now they seem completely dependent on the Latifi cash and they're, they're cutting off their arms and their ability to make any money and make any progression. Um, the sadder we say the state of Williams F1 is, the more they seem to find another, another depth to sink to and another irreversible move backwards. So I, I, I think this could be the killer move, Matt, uh, actually getting rid of a revenue generator getting a loan from your driver, you're paying back your driver. You're, that's not your employee anymore. That's not your driver anymore. They own, they own the house. That's now your bank. They're now your owners. So William's trying to race as an F1 entity when they're essentially beholden to their driver and they have to pay loan payment, a mortgage essentially on their business back to their driver, means that Williams is effectively dead as a racing entity. They're effectively dead if and only if they cannot begin to turn it around and attract sponsors. Where they are now is, as I have said, I think they are capitalized to run through this year, to have run through this year. So they will have been saving some money that they're not spending building cars and going to races. And if they can attract the sponsors, if they can keep the revenue fairly neutral and make their loan payments, then... They will continue to do so in 21, but it's a big bet, but they're all in it for the racing. What they really ought to do in terms of getting sponsors is try and hit an untapped market. You know, there are a lot of people from the same industries that sponsor Formula One teams. They need to go and find one that say, hey, look, this industry is not in Formula One. It, it should be. And you can slap your name all over our car. I mean, they've already got a title sponsorship deal with Rocket, and that is entirely independent of uh, Latifi. IT has a fairly big role in Formula One. Good start. 
they need to go and find other like like what Haas did with with Rich Energy, finding like a rival to Red Bull. Now, before it all ah, you know yeah. unfolded uh, the way it did on paper, it was a great idea. I mean, even even Williams turned down Rich Energy. To be fair, Chris, uh, even they could see that coming. Just an example. Just an example. Like find a rival to to someone. Okay, so who's 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 a big sponsor for another team then that we can that we can find a rival for? Uh, so they need to find a rival oil company. They need to find their own Patronus and rocket ship, ship themselves. Oh, rocket! Ah, R- ah! But the, the problem with that is that because um, uh, oil brands are associated with certain manufacturers, and so they, as a uh, a Mercedes customer, could not get like a Patronus rival sponsor, for example, or it would be very deeply frowned upon so that's why it's important to try and find an untapped market where there's no you know politics already instilled just speaking from here in the states drugstores and banks would be like your main players if you're looking for lots of money ah but banks they've already got royal bank of canada on the car because of latifi so wait 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 wait. does he own a bank no no they're just a sponsor Oh, right. Okay. In my head, you said Royal Bank of Latifi. You didn't say that at all, did you? You said, well, that's just, that's just how I'm thinking about it. So uh, let, let me, let me know what you think of my, my comments. I'm, I'm speaking from the heart and I've speak, I'm speaking from what I've seen as this decline. Uh, we, we kind of called it, uh, as soon as Stroll went there and especially then when Sorokin went there, you know, me and Matt argued long and hard. Uh, about the direction this could go. I, I was saying to Matt, you know, this could only go in one direction. Matt has always been a little more hopeful. I, I've seen the role of the pay drivers as far more detrimental in the long term in this era of Formula One than Matt. So we'll see uh, in the next two years whether Matt's sense of optimism, you know, c- can play out. But but let me know if you think I was being hyperbolic. I don't really, I don't really know words. But I like the sound of that word. I'm going to go with it as if it's correct. If you think I'm being hyperbolic, you can email me spannersready at gmail.com. Let me know what we're hyperbolically hyperboling. Uh, just a kind of closing thought on the, the sponsors um, issue is that because um, a, a lot of companies um, are, are like turning away from Formula One in, in general um, and trying to move towards um, series that use hybrid or electric cars like Formula E, for example, so you'll notice that Shell have like really moved their attention away from the gas guzzling Formula One cars over to the e-fluids they make for electric vehicles, for example. So even like things associated with with cars and the automotive industry in general is it's not becoming a no-go area, but it's becoming increasingly difficult to find people who want to be plastered on a Formula One car. And if we go to the chat room, Lafty Guitar has reminded me that you can contribute to the to the show. In YouTube with Super Chat, uh, $1.99 Lefty has uh, dumped in there and said, is the is the F1 business model as a whole exposed? Thank you for the contribution and the question, Lefty Guitar. Um, that is probably a question we can definitely cover with Matthew Carter and and Joe Sayward, Matt. So we'll park that for just, the sec- for just a second. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. 
That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. And we'll finish off our big dirty news by going to the, the top of the grid. And I nearly choked on my breakfast right this morning, guys, when I was reading my, my publication of racer.com. Uh, I know everyone else reads it on their website, but I get it delivered in a broadsheet. So as I was turning and folding over the pages of racer.com newspaper, because it's still 1998, I, I read in there that you know with the budget caps that we were saying, we were suggesting Matt might have to be a lot harsher in order for other teams to survive. That has been uh, echoed by Zach Brown. Pretty sure he heard it on here and then, and then said it in the media that, you know, a really harsh budget cap is going to be the only way to save all the teams and, and to stop them from going under and to make it competitive. And, and everyone's really going to have to rethink the motorhomes, the constant, the constant tweaks of aero that Matthew Carter described as he went around the, the Renault offices and seeing a huge gaggle of aero engineers all picking up 35 grand a year uh, wages just to, to get that marginal gain. So this budget cap, you know, is going to have to cut all of that out, simplify F1. Uh, and obviously you'll need agreement from all the teams. And one of the teams is Ferrari, who hilariously, in the funniest thing I've ever read, that's not true, but the funniest thing I've read today, uh, Mattia Binotto believes the solution could be different F1 caps for different teams. Chris, I honestly, I couldn't believe the, like, are they, do they have any self-awareness at all when they say things at Ferrari and then everybody applauds and then they say them out loud? The suggestion that you could have, this terrible, this F1, isn't it? Because Ferrari spend 200 million and other teams spend 120 million. So let's have a budget cap that applies to everyone except Ferrari and presumably Mercedes. I, I couldn't believe what I was reading. I know, it's like a bad joke, isn't it? Because it just defeats the purpose of the whole idea. And it, be, coming in as a manufacturer, making your own parts, that's the route you want to take. You could buy from someone else if you don't want to. If your budget does not allow for that, go and buy it. You know, If it were cheaper to make it, then everyone would be doing it. Well, that's true, but they're being greedy little buggers anyway because they get more money than anybody else from their, you know, having been in Formula One longer than anybody else, or that's the claim. 
So they're already getting more than anybody else. Now they want a, a bigger budget cap. For goodness sake, guys, if you can't manufacture your car for the same money as everybody else, then do what you've been saying for years and pull out of Formula One. Steve, like you've hit the nail. On, what, what I thought you'd finish that sentence with was, if you can't manufacture your parts cheaper per point of performance, then you're not doing as well. Like, you know, that's part of the sport is doing as yep, well as you a- can with your money. And why yep. Force India were lauded for so long as the best pound for pound team was they were getting, you know, the aero points per pound. Yeah, that's a fair enough comment too. You know, perhaps part of Ferrari's issue is that their organisation is so wieldly and out of control now that they can't do things cheap anymore. Perhaps that's their problem. Yes, but... By the same token, Ferrari, Mercedes, Red Bull, and as we know from Carter, Renault at least, also employ a lot of people. If you say we are going to go from 175 to 100 or 125, what they will tell you is that my staff of 650 will now be 450 or 350, and I will have to not bring these people back, but fire them. And subsequent to that, and I think it's not an insignificant thing for people to understand that when we talk about a team like Haas or or a team like Racing Point or any team that buys suspension bits, brake ducts, gearboxes, well, that's a significant sunk cost in design staff to make that every year. The Especially the exposed bits are uh, complete aerodynamic parts, just like a front wing. So they do cost more to design, absolutely. Steve? Um, uh, That's true that um, those large teams employ a lot of people. And, yes, if suddenly the cost cap is brought down to, um, you know, 125, whatever, they're going to have the ability to employ less people. But the other side of that is unless we do this, we're going to lose maybe three or four teams out of Formula One, and that's probably a bigger whack than losing each of the big teams, losing a few engineers. Well, the original model was stepped down to allow the teams to work through work through their um, work through their numbers, their employee numbers, and bring them down without without getting rid of people. And I think what Ferrari is suggesting is that they're happy to come down. But there's going to be a basement for them where they have to start laying off people versus we don't want to lose teams off the grid. And that is a delicate balance and one that I think is how can you even work it out when we don't even know when we're going racing again? To I, a certain I, extent. I understand that from the Ferrari point of view. I understand that from the big teams point of view. However, these are not normal times. These are not times that we planned for. And if F1 is facing an existential crisis where the choice is, and and I'm not suggesting that that this is the choice, but if the choice was the two big teams are going to have to lay off some staff so that four or five teams can survive, very easy for me to say because I'm not a Mercedes or Ferrari employee. But we, we could be looking at losing half the grid and maybe F1 completely disappearing. And if F1 disappears, everyone loses loses their job. So again... Do email me, do tell me, uh, or oh, you can tweet us at MissApexF1 or at SpannersReady if that is a cold and callous approach. But these teams have grown to enormous, enormous sizes. Brackley has, what, a thousand engineers? 
compared to some teams who have a couple of hundred engineers. It's it's the same as a football team and one team playing with 15 players and one team playing with eight players. So eventually, at some point, we were going to get to a sporting point where we realised that that this wasn't good and it wasn't going to go on forever and it could be the collapse of the global economy that is the catalyst for making F1 more of a sport and less of a franchise corporate operation. Yeah, and if I could just um, dovetail on that, the model of the sport when Bernie ran it constantly saw the small teams changing hands and or leaving and more teams than there were prize money spots for. So part of the model was we always wanted new money coming into the sport, trying to be successful. I think with Liberty taking it over, that has changed. They wanted the teams to have an ownership stake in the sport itself. Franchise. Exactly. But they're nowhere near being done with their plans when this happens. So it's all up in the air. Let me defend myself from Tom Wheatley in the chat room who says, oh, the socialist republic of Formula One. No, not at all. Like you said, there was a model where teams could come in and try and do well. But the fact is that the size of the top teams and the the overall cost to get anywhere near the front of the grid has meant that those days Matt just described are completely over. You're not going to just get a team in F2, like in the movie Rush, going, well, well, we'll just give F1 a go this season and see how it how it goes, you know. That isn't that isn't viable anymore. You need to be a huge, a huge corporation. You need to almost be a, a works team or someone like Gene Haas with all that racing pedigree to come in and try to do it because we've moved to this franchise and because we've got those absolutely ginormous powerhouse teams. Moving those teams back down to sensible levels isn't some kind of F1 communist state. It's just a bit of common sense where we had a system, it was working for a certain amount of years, and it's just gone a bit too far. And something was going to have to happen to roll it back, or you're just going to get a four-car grid. Uh, Get off my soapbox and and press buttons and things. Look, there we go. There we go. That's better. Well, news is all fine and well for a podcast to talk about, but really, we wouldn't have anything if it wasn't for our panel. And I'm going to speak to our two panelists who are both experts in different ways. We all know old Aussie Steve there. When he's not wrestling crocodiles and putting them on barbecues, he's doing videos. Uh, but first, let's talk to Chris Stevens, who's been one of the longest serving members of Missed Apex podcast. You were 12 years old when you made your debut here in the shed, Chris. Uh, no. And how far, I think that's I think that's accurate, no. how far we've come. And you are now 16 years old. No, you're an adult now. You're like, what, 20? Four? I'm 22. 22. That's so young. That's like pathetically young. Day. That is pointlessly young. Like you are, you don't even register to me as a human oh, being. I'm so jealous. Oh, I am absolutely jealous. Oh, to be young and beautiful again. Uh, but Chris, uh, when we first met, you were a, what Will Buxton would uh, describe as a bedroom. <laughs> uh, you were trying to produce content in your bedroom of no particular pedigree. Is that fair to say? No particular, you know, your uncle wasn't head of autosport. You didn't have great wealth behind you. You used to sort of just, you know, scrabble around in the dustbins, just hoping there would be some morsel for you to get through the day. Yeah. So when when I started, uh, I was still at, um, I was still in sixth form um, or, or, 
or college. Ooh, educated, um, you fancy. To, you know, uh, yeah, yeah, there was a little bit of that. Uh, working for this uh, dead-end website that we'd, like, I'd helped bring up from the earth. I plucked it out they're, of the they're ground still, They're myself. still running, though, so I'm not going to be too no, hard. No, it's not. Oh, it's, it's not. not. Oh, okay, okay. It's, it's not at all. It died, like, two weeks after I left. <laughs> Uh, but you were then going up to places who would pay you for an article and you were, uh, obviously you had full-time employment elsewhere, but you were honestly going about your trade trying to mm. be an F1 journalist. And this is why I sometimes get upset with people in F1 media who say, you know, wow, you should just stop working in other things and just get on a plane and follow F1 around. Because I watched you for years trying to follow motorsport around and and there is there is a there is a monetary restriction unless you have really good connections. And yeah. we watched with pride as you went from writing the odd article for Formula Spy, uh, for Formula E and Formula One, uh, to then being accepted into the Autosport Academy. But you really had to graft to get there. And it's fair to say that the princes, the other princes that were there, frowned upon you because you you would turn up in handmade Hessian sacks instead of fine suits and clothing. <laughs> uh, so so after I left the Dead End website to join um, Formula Spy, which was actually like a, a decent, very well regarded in Formula One, I'd started doing Formula um, E, and I was working at uh, Top Man at the same time. All I wanted to do was work in, in motorsport media. And the whole point of working at Top Man was to pay for flights, pay for hotels, that's, that's all it was, and to, to get me food, um, during the rest of the time when I wasn't traveling, uh, and it was a uh, that was that was about three or four years that I was I was doing that uh, while also doing some stuff with the Autosport Academy as well. Yeah, hey, tell me tell me about the Autosport Academy because that has been over the years uh, a breeding ground mm. for for young journalists. So how does that work? How do you get accepted to that? And and you know what what kind of an advantage is it once you get there? You know is that is that the start of the ladder? Or is that just like a school? No, so, so they advertise every once in a while. It's usually about every six months. Um, I don't know how often it's it's happening um, now, um, but a, a few years ago, it was about every six months. They'd say, you know, if you want to join the academy, then send us your stuff. And I went for the interview, um, did the trials. You have to do like certain number of tasks. Um, Tell me for, about for the them. tasks. Don't skip past the tasks. What were the tasks you had to do? So I did. So there was a Q and A, which was basically to assess your knowledge of motorsport and how well you can construct an argument. And so after you failed those two, I did. I did pretty well in 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 those, I think. And then so they invited me in to to the office where we did some some group trials stuff where we did like you know group work, but then there were also other things like test of styles. So you know they give us a bit of bit of copy and we point out the mistakes and stuff like that um how you do a, like a race report so they they showed us an australian formula ford 1600 race from bathurst and like right nice write a report on on that for for dot com which would never happen but it's the the point of the of the of the task and they seem to like me so so i got accepted and then after that it becomes yeah like a school where you are taught uh, the, the the best way to go about sort of motorsport journalism, and there were some other, interesting other things in there as well, like um, there were some PR lessons every once in a while, and and other things that you could apply in a motorsport um, way. 
So it was uh, the best thing about it, though, is that it just becomes like a seal of approval. So when I was yes. going about the paddock in informally, e, it was like, oh, yeah. And by the way, I'm also uh, part of the Sport Academy. And suddenly they go, oh, oh okay. yeah, no, I've, I've had very similar experiences where, you know, certain credentials mean that they might not say yes, but at least they tell you that at least they take the time to tell you to sod off. And you go, oh, yeah, that's that's further up the ladder than just being ignored. That's good. But they remember you, and that's the important thing. <laughs> they remember telling you to sod off. Um, yeah. So you launch out of the Autosport Academy. Um, and actually, Chris, you know, incredibly proud of how far you got. You didn't end up becoming basically Chris Medland or Will Buxton, but you, you, you applied an honest trade doing 750 Motor Club, where I know you made, mm. I know you made really good relationships there, which is the hallmark yeah. of a great journalist. And you're still friends with some of the people there. And then, went all the way to Formula E in the paddock as well. Yeah, so uh, not with Autosport, I should point out. Um, Alex and Scott would be very upset if I were to <laughs> say I was um, associated with them um, at the time. Uh, but um, I was, yeah, doing um, Formula E stuff with, with Formula Spy, trying to do independently, applying everything that I'd learned with Autosport and from the 750 Motor Club into the international um, scene. And I, I could feel the massive difference between the first year when I was there against the two years that I did while I was in the academy. Okay, so so tell me tell me about that because one of the here at Mistake Apex we've been chasing accreditation forever mm-hmm. uh, with very limited success. We are now getting to the point, by the way, where they do tell us to politely sod off, but in very nicely worded emails. And you may uh, see some Mistake Apex rec- rep- uh, representation in the next couple of years. It's something we're definitely not giving up on. But I would not send myself because I, as much as I would love to be in the paddock, the thought of like going up to these drivers and going, Hi, I'm from, I'm from the internet. Can you tell me some things? Terrifies me. You know, how, how did that feel the first time in the Formula E paddock with drivers who are household names? So the, the first time was there was like a bit of a starstruck um, thing. Um, and I still do get that um sometimes because you forget and uh and then suddenly you remember like god damn i'm dealing with like superstars here and then or if the, when uh when uh, villeneuve joined formally as well there was like a big like whoa okay and then you do like a really good interview <laughs> with someone who's like a massive name like Go when on. stoffel van dawn joined formally e. so weird with stoffel so i just stuff as you call him yeah the, yeah stuff them off um when he joined, so it was at testing in Valencia pre-season, and I thought, I just need to exude confidence. So just walked into the garage and just said, uh, oh, hi, Stoffel. Sorry to, you know, interrupt. Or not Mr. Not Van Dorn. Um, yeah. Uh, no, no, Stoffel. Oh, first name him. Um, and just, int- just introduced myself uh, and, and said, you know, have you got five minutes for a quick chat? And you've got you, you to just do the introduction and get it out of the way. And and do it. And so once you, you I think you you did a few seasons, didn't you, in the Formula E paddock? I did three and a half seasons. So by the end, it really was Felipe, baby, stuffle waffle, yeah. JV. How's it going? How's the kids? So, uh, well, I I I would ask uh, ask Lucas about his son. Yeah, Leonardo. Um, Jeff doesn't have any kids, but uh, I would ask. Yeah, the drivers. <laughs> Seb's got um, two kids. So I would ask him about Boemi, them as well. You, you have just casual conversation. That's part of building the relationship as well. It's just having casual and frank off the record, you know, conversations. 
So one of the things I have noticed is that certain drivers tend to be a bit more shy, particularly if mm. they don't recognize you as well. Yeah. And so I'm curious in your career, like at what point did you cross over that boundary and could get actual conversations out of them? So, so the first round is always going to be tough. The first round, you always have to just accept, look, they don't know me. So why should they tell me anything, really? It's when you start uh, appearing at multiple races, they see your face more and more. You just got to try and talk to as many people as you can, as many opportunities as possible, making the connections with the PRs as well, because they're the ones who'll end up telling the driver, you know, oh, this guy's a regular, this guy's important, and we want to, you know, say something, say something good for for him or something like that. But it's just about, yeah, showing your face as much as possible. Uh, in the chat room, uh, let's see, Martin Van Kant says, Starstruck? I don't get that. They're just humans. And that is absolutely yeah. true. They all poop and wee, and they all put trousers on one leg at a time. But like when I've met my heroes, for example, podcast hero uh, of mine, best ever podcast in the world, uh, Dr. Stephen Novella from The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, I saw him in a conference in Manchester and I was like, that's him. I'm going to stroll up to him and tell him I think he's brilliant. I got to within two meters and went, <laughs> no, I'm not doing that. That's Dr. Stephen Novella off of the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. So that is something you really do have to bear in mind. These people, they're just, you know, people treat them like like people and not like, you know, with the with the eyes. like. Ah. But uh, if I were to like compare Stoffel to when I first met Jeb, that is, that's two ends of the extreme because with Stoffel it was just a very casual and he was very accommodating Jeb especially when he first arrived in Formula E because he was not in a good place and uh, he was he was angry as hell because he'd been ditched by Red Bull and he was forced out of Formula One now he had to drive in this rubbish electric series um but I'm glad you admit it finally loved. okay no no he ultimately loved it as soon as he left because at the time as well, he and then he just signed for a team that didn't want him there. And as soon as he joined Tachita, it was like Jeb was reborn. But when I first met him, he was still at Andretti. And so I would uh, I just was in London and I said, like, oh, uh, hi, Jeff, how are you? Have you got you got five minutes? And it was just, no. And he walked off. They're like, oh, wow. okay, that could have gone worse. But <laughs> Hey, you don't ask, you don't get. Chris, we could no, talk exactly. to you um, all evening. Next time you're on, I want part two of the story uh, moving into PR and you become the the gamekeeper, not the hunter. Is that an accurate? That's an accurate way to put it, isn't it? Uh, yeah, maybe. Okay, we'll have more of that later, but I do want to make sure we speak to Steve as well today. You're listening to Missed Apex Podcast. That's right. I'm adopting the radio technique of reminding you what you're listening to. That's right. I've insulted your intelligence. Now I'm going to ask for support www.patreon.com forward slash missed apex is how we fund this podcast and keep it going i cannot believe that during the pandemic uh, during the lockdown when it's been six months since a formula one race there are still listeners out there who a matt continue to support us and have not left in droves which i assumed they would which is why we can be increasingly confident of still doing this but people have been signing up, not at the rate that they would have done had we had races and Grand Prix. But people are still saying, I see that's how you're funded. I value what you're doing. And they're still signing up for Patreon. And I have been happiness. Yeah, happiness. Sticking with that. I cannot take away uh, 
a more happy message in this time that we have managed to put something together and create a community that people wish to belong to. Um, I had no idea we could be this successful at it, and I'm grateful that people have taken it to be what we always wanted it to be and are continuing to support it. I see Daniel Long Longworth saying, my girlfriend was your 500th Patreon. She was very upset at not being shouted. Well, consider this a shout, my friend. Uh, tell, tell us her name so we don't just say of Daniel. Uh, thank you for your support. The 500th patron was a real big milestone for us, Matt. We're an incredibly ambitious project, which we shouldn't be because we are basically scum, Matt. I don't know who the who who do we think we are trying to make a thing of this, uh, but the more we're supported, uh, the more we grow, the more we can become established within within F1 and start to do things, significant things, not because we're brilliant, but because we can bring on board people who who are brilliant, <laughs> frankly, Matt. That's been our tactic, hasn't it, this whole time? is yes. We're curious fans. We like chatting to each other about F1, and we work hard to bring people who know stuff. Absolutely. I think slipstreaming is a thoroughly accepted tactic in Formula One, and that is entirely our model. Patreon.com forward slash Missed Apex. Thank you so much for your support. Steve, Amy, Steve, Amy from Australia land. You are, you are the reason we have a YouTube presence. Without you, if you were to slip and fall in the shower, Steve, which is something at your age that I am constantly scared of, <laughs> if you were to slip and fall, we would not have this video production. I, I literally, literally cannot recreate what you do. And thank goodness you've got your Australian background now because the sight of Chris's bedroom was giving me PTSD as your as your background no don't do it no don't do it more i've just said now i'm sweating like every visitor to chris's bedroom failed to do Uh, right so uh, you are though a professional video guy like you know there's pictures of you in the 70s with crazy long hair in in boob tubes doing stop motion animation i may have made up the boob boob tubes i don't know um but you know you've got a very video mind you go out and do live stuff you go and do like adverts and tv productions and things like that so you understand camera angles and camera shots so this is why when we've been doing the iRacing and you have been being our virtual tv director it looks it just looks amazing steve Bradley Philpott would not shut up the next day going, oh my God, oh my God, Steve's made it look like it's telly. Uh, obviously, iRacing takes a big credit for that, but your understanding of uh, of the different shots and what makes for good viewing have been brilliant. So my first question to you is, you know, how much is that um, part of your desire to have, you know, always been a, a motorsport video guy? You go, oh yes, now I get to use my skills in a motorsport arena. Oh, yes, part of that. I've, you know, been directing television stuff, including sport, for a long time, since the early 70s. Um, and it, I, it wasn't until the late 70s that I got into car racing. But once I got into car racing, yes, I was itching to get my hands, you know, on a let's go cover some car racing job. And it didn't really ever happen until I did lots of football and basketball and stuff like that. But um, the iRacing has given me a chance to, you know, go and pursue that a bit, and I get a huge kick out of trying to put together a quality kind of coverage given that, um, you know, the people we're competing with are um, NASCAR, Formula One, um, you know, um, 
indie, those sorts of things. Uh, and they have big resources and they have contacts into all of the pe- the gaming um, companies and that sort of thing. So they, they get, you know, some easy access. We get none of that. So, you know, our task is put together a professional quality coverage without those kind of resources. Now, that happens because we have a brilliant team of people. It's not me. I do one part of it. Um, we have Chris Squared, who are our brilliant um, commentary team. And, Two people you know, called really, Chris. Yeah. Uh, top of their game. Um, and we have our, our iRacing administrators, um, Sam and Richard, who uh, work really tirelessly hard to put it together and get the drivers on side and to make certain that they all run liveries we can and, and numbers that uh, are consistent. And then there's um, Ian Erasmus, Bubbly Chunks, who does a lot of our car design. Um, so that whole team of people, and, of course, yourself and Matt, and those people work as a team, um, and it is a brilliant thing for me um, to, to see this team come together and work. Now, I'm into teams. Whenever I'm out directing commercials and things like that, I'm putting together different teams all the time. Each crew is a different team. So that whole team building thing is something I'm very au fait with. And to see it being done at long distance, you know, from across the world, yeah. all the people together is just, it blows my mind. Now it's not without its, you know, its hurdles kind of saying it's gone all smooth sailing and we haven't fallen out or oh, no. falling out, fallen out at least a thousand times. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> internationally collaborating with a, with a team of willing volunteers to make that production has been very rewarding, and but you know we'll, we'll establish that we're using we're using iRacing as our our platform, and I think if you go and check out what we've done, at Missed Apex Motorsport on YouTube, it should be there. Type Missed Apex Motorsport. Are yep, they are they, pu- are they publicly now listed the the latest rounds? We can yes, go, yes, we can the, the, the four races from last yeah. uh, Friday are up there. But now particularly so race one, which I've watched, which was a great battle between our own Bradley Philpott and David Hatton, looked like legit TV coverage. And I think we've compared favourably to the organisations that you've said with the big budgets. Obviously, we can't compare with the driver names. So it's only if you like, if you're really into Missed Apex or competing, then yeah, you're going to get a kick out of watching it. But I would recommend at least going and checking out what Steve has done, and we're going to put a highlights package together. Really interesting with iRacing, though, is although anybody, probably literally anybody, could go and be a watcher for an iRace and, and, and put it on a video encoding software, like you made the whole production, like you had video guides from Brad, you had like bumpers, you suddenly, like in the morning, I woke up to you going, here's a voiceover script, say things, monkey. And I went into the studio and <laughs> recorded it. And then I was as surprised as anyone when the live stream started. And it was like, oh, there's me speaking with all these video breaks and stuff. Like how important to you is that that opening and that production and building a story? Uh, that's really important. I mean, putting the package together so that it looks professional, um, that's how you make it look professional, by putting that kind of content into it. And Chris doing his research into the track that we're on so that, we can pull up a track map and he can talk about why they're named, you know, the corners are named like they are. Um, for sports coverage, there's kind of two ways you can, two kind of approaches to it. One is kind of the journalistic approach, and that is we will just cover the action. We'll make certain that, you know, the leaders get covered. If someone crashes down the back, we'll cut to that. And that's kind of a journalistic approach. 
for me, it's more important that we take a slightly dramatic approach, and that is that we build um, engagement with the audience and we try and tell a, a really compelling narrative. Now, that is looking for where the competition is going on in the field, and I rely on Chris Squared for that because they're looking at that sort of thing, and if they say, hey, such and such is having a great battle down the back with whoever, then I can jump to that and we can cover it. So building this kind of narrative is is important um, because that's the way that you get viewers involved. I mean, it's also partly the way we use camera angles, and I tend to use them slightly differently than a normal live coverage. Okay, and that's tell me. Because I, I, sorry. Tell me why. Um, I use them slightly differently because I want to build this drama and narrative. Secondly, because I can. iRacing has uh, a couple of wonderful things. That is, they have chase cameras. Uh, and tracking cameras that follow the cars, which I think are fantastically dramatic. I've had a few drivers from our iRacing fraternity say, oh, but it's not realistic. Well, I'm here to say that if Liberty could figure out how to configure a chase cam to follow a car, I mean, it's really a drone, a high-speed drone shot. If they could figure out how practically to do that, they would be pushing the Jesus out of it, and, and they would be publicising it as a you know a, a huge innovation in sports coverage. Um, they can't do it, so for once we have the um, the, the, the lead on them. Matt, right? So Spanners asks the why, and I love that. But you know me, I'm definitely asking the how. How do you use these cameras differently to tell your story compared to, let's say, a standard Formula One broadcast? Like, what are you doing differently? And I need to tell you that Mark Greenhow and Eric both in the chat have shouted you out for just the amazing production values you've brought to this project. Thank you, guys. Um, How I use them differently is if there is a battle going on... And, and two drivers, are, you know, really pushing each other, like Brad and David Hatton were last weekend, then I'm watching for them coming to the obvious overtaking points. And as they're coming to the overtaking points, I am likely to go through this kind of sequence. Cut to an onboard camera from the roll hoop or in the cockpit of the driver behind so that we can see him coming up on the car in front. As he pulls out to go around the car, I will cut to a wider chase shot so that we can sit tracking with the two cars so that we can see him pull out and begin to go around the car. Then I'll cut to a trackside shot as they finish the corner. As they come out of the corner and go away, I'll come out to a uh, a trackside car, still pretty close on the car. Um, and by doing that, I'm bringing the viewer into the kind of world of the driver, what the driver is trying to do and showing them that those chase cameras show the actual argy-bargy through the corner much, much better than just a trackside shot by itself where you, you know, in a widest shot, you see the cars come around the corner and one overtakes the other. So I'm trying to drop the drivers, uh, the, the viewers, into the world of the driver and to get that kind of sense of um, competition, of adrenaline uh, at living on the edge. And that's part of that, you know, compelling narrative that I'm trying to build rather than just point a camera at a car. And you, you built it, you know, very well. Uh, we are very similar with that, with the coverage. 
uh, when I was commentating on karting. Had I been a better kart, uh, kart, kart commentator, I would be like Crofty or Jack Nichols with like supreme accuracy. But a lot of the time, as a club level uh, commentator, Chris Stevens, you can you can relate to this. You get dropped yeah. in. You don't know any of the people. You don't know the colours. And the one thing I've said to you with the iRacing commentary, the only note I've given you because you're fantastic, is actually don't, this is, this is, I mean, this is not great, but like, don't worry too much about the details. Concentrate <laughs> on the story you can see. Don't worry about what you can't because there's so much you can't know. No. The, but yeah, because the problem is, I mean, we had 41 cars in the <laughs> iRacing thing and at the karting, we had 16 uh, 60 yeah so you 16, can't know 16, yeah. everyone and uh I, at least with the i racing i was able to do um a lot of research in, especially in terms of like the spotters guide so steve did a fantastic job putting together all the liveries and, and telling me who was who so that i could research that beforehand but uh, i do also just want to say like thanks to everyone who has taking the time to uh, say how much they enjoyed uh, my commentary and, and Catman's as well. Actually, it really means a lot. If you want to get involved in the next round of the Mist Apex iRacing, we are going to be racing on Thursday, the 23rd of April at the Silverstone National Circuit. There is tough competition for places, but if you are interested, get in touch with me, spannersready at gmail.com and have iRacing as the subject line. Uh, if you can't get a place, fear not, we will add you to the registry. And I am arguing with Steve as we speak about opening up the grid for rounds three and four. Uh, just real quick, because it's coming up in the chat room again and again. If you want to see these amazing videos Steve is talking about, you must search for Missed Apex Motorsports on YouTube. And if you feel like it, even subscribe. Let's bring this back to F1, Steve. I've got some questions. Um, so obviously you watch the F1 from a director's eye. Let's start with Darren, who is a patron. Thank you very much for your support. Darren, he's got three questions for you. And I love that he's used my numbering system. So question one, question two, and question three is an emoji. Good, correct. Why, when the sport is time limited, do we get so many shots of crowds and flags rather than racing? Is there a technical reason for this? Is it waffle or is it artistic? And, and just to add to that, there was a, a comment in the chat room from Lairhound who said TV cameras are often focused specifically on sponsor, sponsor banners and they've got that restriction as well. So let's start with the crowd shot, Steve. Is that just classic filler? I think what they're trying to do is to give some sense to the viewer at home that it's a big event with lots of people there and it's exciting to sit at the side of the track and watch the racing. That's part of them promoting the event so that when the event turns up in your city, you'll want to go along and watch it. Um, part of it is just to break away a little bit from showing a track you know, for, that's what you see for about 85% of any race coverage is cars going around a track. So I think they're just trying to break it up. I do agree with Darren that there is sometimes too much of it. Uh, and I can only assume that they may have a technical glitch or something like that, that they're using that shot to, you know, cover up. Uh, they have so many cameras and resources that, you know, to cut to a wide shot senselessly you know of a crowd just to cover up another camera shot repositioning or whatever is a bit weird you'd reckon you'd cut to another shot where there's some action going on since that's what the, the what the name of the game is but um i don't think it's filler 
it's certainly not artistic, I don't think, in, in that kind of world. Um, yeah. There's not a lot of artistic <laughs> going on. Remember that Ooh, that's the direction scathing. team. Sorry. That's scathing, Steve. There's not a lot of artisticness uh, going on. No, there's not a lot for that. I mean, there's a lot of pressure from Libby to, to make certain that all the teams get a bit of coverage, that all the major sponsors get a little bit of co- you know, coverage for their signage too, because after all, that's what they sell, the, you know, it's what they're buying when the sponsors pay their money. Um, the structure for uh, a crew directing, uh, following uh, a, a Formula One race is pretty complex. Um, in terms of direction, you've got the team that are responsible for just covering the race action. That is an online director and he's working with the cameras and the cameramen to make certain that the cars are followed. On top of that, you have another team, a presentation team, whose sole job is to make certain that the appropriate graphics are up on screen at the right time in terms of timing, in terms of sponsors and all that sort of stuff, the AWS logos and yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, they're also, they're also, they also have the responsibility of playing in the replays. Uh, and they will line them up and put them in. And yes, sometimes they're very slow at putting them in. Yeah, the replays. You know, that's one of my big bugbears. You Is know, it? If yeah, yeah. If if some exciting on 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 track action happens, we should be able to see a replay five or six seconds later, not twenty five seconds later when we've gone on three corners and we're now thinking about other things. Now, and now, on top of those two layers, yeah. you will then have the overall producer or showrunner. Uh, who will be saying just generalise things to the other two teams. Like, we haven't seen any coverage of Haas down the back for a long time. Give us a couple of shots so that Gene doesn't come around and chew my leg off. Um, Fair enough, Steve. So I- those three levels work together yeah. in order to bring the coverage to us. Uh, it was a very popular th- theme, this one, with the crowd, so I'm glad you've addressed that. I mean, Brendan on Twitter, thank you, by the way, to everyone who responded uh, at Mist Apex F1. What's the obsession with the crowds and the garage shots during battles? Is it a contractual requirement? Um, and then and then he, he goes on to a, a point which uh, Darren also said in our Slack group, why not use the 70s tech of split screen uh, when, for example, one driver is crossing the line and there's another battle going on. Darren said, is there a technical reason why F1 coverage doesn't use picture-in-picture, including in replays? I don't think there's any technical reason why they don't, and I'm damned if I know why they don't. They use that technique very successfully with the Aussie supercars, and it is a brilliant way to be able to keep track of the on-track action while you're seeing a replay, and it would be very simple to set up. So, Guys, I'll put my hands in the air. There's, as far as I can see, there's absolutely no reason why they shouldn't be doing that. Right. Stuart Neal thinks we might need to outbid Sky for the next contract, but I believe all the TV ops come out of Big and Hill and Formula One directly, so it wouldn't be as useful as you might think. I just want to get one quick question into Steve. Of the eras of TV, of Formula One TV that you've watched, do you have a favorite, not for the racing, not for the personalities, but just flat out for the best coverage. Yeah, now we, we have the technology. We have digital systems that allow us to have, you know, really interesting and, and deep data streams and show us all sorts of interesting data. stuff. I'm, I'm just translating <laughs> so everyone will understand. No one says data. <laughs> well, for, for you people in the Northern Hemisphere, yeah, okay. Um, and we have uh, much better cameras. The quality is certainly superior. 
Um, we have many more of them. We have helicopters and blimps and drones and all of that stuff. So in terms of, you know, bringing a really interesting coverage to, to the sport, you can't beat today. We have one more question that I want to give you from the Slack group, Steve, and then we'll wrap up today. And I'll tell you what, uh, as so often happens with off-season content, you think, oh, what are we going to talk about this week? <laughs> there's no news, there's no sport. You, you pull on a thread, and I now know I want to speak to Chris Moore about public relations and the way the drivers interact uh, with the press and how they release all their promos. And Chris has already given us a glimpse. Uh, oh, no, no, Chris has never told us anything. He's not told us anything that we're not supposed to know ever. He's very professional. But honestly, he's told us some really good stories. Um, and now, Steve, I, I want to pull on so many of these strings of broadcast production. So we've certainly got more to talk about during the extended off-season. I'm not even calling it a lockdown. Don't even call it a lockdown. Call it an extended off-season. Steve, Anders is making you the supreme director of the F1 live feed. Thank you, Anders, for your question. How would you manage it? Uh, lots of different TV licenses, uh, and way too often the key action is missed in real time. And as he points out, replays come in late. Um, so what few changes would you make to the F1 broadcast? We're giving you all the benefit of uh, none of the, the problems they've got. This is pure wish list fantasy from an artsy video director point of view. Change what you want. Okay, the first thing I'd do is um, develop high-speed drones that were able to track cars <laughs> so, that, so that we had chase shots in real life. That would really, you know, up the, the game a lot. Um, I agree with Anders that um, replays need to be much more immediate while people still have it in their brain and the adrenaline is still kind of running from the viewer's point of view of, oh, boy, was that a close call or he ran into the barrier. Um I would definitely try and make those faster. Um, the, the way that the um, coverage gets to everybody around the world is it comes out of one central transmitter. All, all the camera angles at any race anywhere are sent via internet to England before they go anywhere else. Uh, there in England, there is a very large media centre in the south of England, which I think the media centre is still actually owned by Bernie, if I'm the, the actual building and Ooh, equipment, I think it's still owned by Bernie. Anyway, there they have a broadcast team and there's, that's where the camera, uh, the camera director is located. He's talking to the cameraman. Remember, some of the cameras are also robot uh, remote control heads these days that are operated by guys in England. No. They still, they still have some wait, wait, live wait. cameras. So, so well, there's some trackside cams that are like virtually controlled. Yeah, from- sure. Yeah, they're on hotheads and, and guys sit, sit like, you know, like drone pilots in those, you know, movies that show them dropping bombs on people. That's kind of ruined um, it a bit for me. There, is just, oh, no, there are still there. some cameramen there, but why put a cameraman on a camera right cl- in a dangerous position right close to the track when you can put it on a hothead and have some guy sit away from the track True. and why pay for him to travel to Australia if we can do it from south of England? Um, so those things happen. It goes through, it's at Biggin Hill. In, in Where is Biggin Hill? In Suffolk maybe? Oh, I don't Anyway. Know. In the green bit. It goes, okay, f- from out of Biggin Hill comes the generic international feed that is fed to each country. Sky gets the same feed and then they, and so does Germany and so does the Americans and the Australians down here, and then we put in our own individual bits and pieces. Sky cut into their camera shots, you know, to, 
showing their guys walking down the pit lane and the, doing their bits. But by and large, what they're doing is taking the international feed and customising it. Some countries customise it more than others. Some, like Australia, don't customise it at all. They just take the international feed during the races and that's it. Ah, so they don't have to take, when they say world feed, that is, that's the choice that the central person in Biggin Hill, which, by the way, is in that there London, sort of near the blue squiggle at the bottom. Um, but they can also say, ah, well, actually, the world feed is currently following, uh, it's, I was going to say Michael Schumacher because I was watching 1997 uh, se- season finale at Jerez earlier today, um, but say they're following Lewis Hamilton, but in Belgium, they want, they want to see what, what uh, Van Dorn or whatever is doing. No, they can't do that. Oh, I'm right, sorry okay. if I misled you. No, they they are stuck with, in terms of the track action, they're stuck with whatever is right. coming out of Biggin okay. Hill. They can put shots of, you know, Martin Blunt, Brundle standing by the track gotcha. commentating on it. If that's what they want, they use their own oh, camera. But-, but they have to use their own. Got it. Okay, yes. I'm with you. I'm with you. Steve, what, what else? One more thing. What would you change about the F1 coverage? Um. I'd be going for bucket loads more in-car kind of yes. action. I mean, that's that's what, you know, that's the, they're the exciting angles. That's what people you know, take a big, you know, deep breath in when, when those kind of angles happen. So I'd be looking for more of that. Um, other than that, they do it pretty well. I mean, we all bitch and complain and there are some things we don't like, but they do it pretty well given the, the logistics they're trying to cover. I was so excited when you said that. Um, have you seen visor cam and like glasses cam yeah. versus the fixed camera? You like yeah, that, part, I have. right? Because it's shaky. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, me too. I, yeah. I think what they've got to do is put, you know, a good stabilizing system on those cameras so it's not quite as shaky as it is now um, uh, and make the angles of the cameras a little bit wider. The camera angles is another thing that is really important to the coverage of a race. And sometimes they choose the wrong angles. So, yeah, that's a long involved thing. But yeah, the visor cams are brilliant. And as soon as I get them sorted out, I love it. I want more of them. A big thank you to everybody who's tuning into Missed Apex podcast. I know not all of you are listening to it on a Monday morning. Some of you are catching up with it later. Thank you for continuing to download the show. Obviously, we took a hit in downloads initially, uh, but it's starting to level off now. So you can consider yourselves uh, part of the lockdown map crew. And actually, we've been performing really well in iTunes. We got up to 68 in the iTunes uh, in the iTunes chart uh, for UK sport, which is unbelievable uh, for me. Obviously, you can put it down if you want to sports shutting down in general and a lot of sports podcasts, you know, just deciding to hang up their boots for a little while. But you're not taking that away from us. 68 in the UK sports iTunes is absolutely massive for us. Uh, so thank you to everybody, part of our community. Uh, Luke, Az, and Martin have signed up as patrons as we speak, as we're doing this show live. And thank you to everyone who comes and joins us in the live stream. Still in numbers uh, today. I think we've had a peak of nearly 300 people tuning in and listening to our little shed show. Thank you for being part of our lives, and we hope we can be a small part of yours. Matt, this chat room, though, they don't ask. Come up with some comments. Oh, yeah, that's right. Spanners be remembering comment of the week. I'm going to play the bumper. Comment now it's official. I remembered it, and it's happening in the show before the end credits. Whoop. Well, I think we're going to have to start out with the fact that, I mean, even now, they're making me cut and paste comments. Um, 
that our 500th Patreon was indeed Sydney Thompson. So thank you very much for that. Thank you, Sydney. And oh my goodness, uh, you thought the show was long. Wait till you get to comment of the week because, man, they're making up for lost time. They were. Matt, you don't have to read every comment. Okay, so let's be clear. Comment of the week doesn't, doesn't involve you just reading out the whole chat room from start to finish. You're supposed to pick the best comments and then we pick a winner. Yeah. I am, I am uh, ignoring oh no, me. I lost it. Uh, I'm frustrated because there were a lot of very, very funny comments this okay, time kids. around. And my favorite was Chris brought the Monaco Ikea room regarding his brand new background, but okay. it's with a whole bunch of symbols and not quite spelled right. Like things from my Ikea generally are, but I've lost the person who made that comment. So we will go with regarding Chris DJ Opdam is Chris homeless and living in Monaco now which I thought was mildly amusing. Um, and Michael Distelhoff, who really got in on the Steve segment, starting with is looking tasty, man. What? No, no, move on. The hell? Uh, fine, I'll move on. He then went for, so for added drama, Steve is going to shout on the drivers, the iRacing drivers, come on, you slow bugger, get out the freaking way. Okay, that's, I mean, that's a little sweary. That's a little sweary. Uh, DJ Optam would very much like to know who is driving the Mist Apex car, first name, last name. Nice one. And there's the Mist Apex Ooh, car yeah. for the video viewers. There we go. And uh, Nathka said, I just noticed there's a spider on Steve's background and genuinely startled. So well done with your visual design there. I mean, gosh, <laughs> Australia is full of scary creatures and the wildlife is pretty frightening as well. <laughs> it, it is indeed and then finally uh, we get in with it williams philip uh williams should get sponsored by medical marijuana to help ease their back marker pain Oof. okay martin dooley is in with williams reno history shows that your ex-wife still isn't a good idea ask mclaren honda do, do you know what? i nearly said mclaren honda instead of it is so similar that i nearly said that yeah, and then uh, finally, Martin Dooley again with, um, talking to Chris Fonseca, we clubbed together for Matt's meal when I was in Italy. Thank you very much, guys. Appreciate that. Surely we could afford a Williams sponsorship. Maybe. And finally, yeah. at the last second, regarding our iTunes rating, Most we'll ever. 68. Almost nice. <laughs> Almost nice. Uh, guys, thank you so much for your comments and giving Matt such a headache when it comes to picking comment of the week. Earlier in the show, Steve called me hemispherist. I would like to deny that because I think Steve would agree we're friends and I've got a southern hemisphere friend, so I can't be hemispherist. Who is the winner of comment of the week, Matt? Oh, it's a tough one, but I think I'm going to have to go with Will Crockett. 68, almost nice. I'm just I thought you were going to give us a new nomination. Just in, 17 more nominations. But congratulations, Will Crockett. You're the winner of... Comment of the week. All right, is that is that it? Because Evangelos has just said that you you did say three final comments. Like I wasn't dreaming that you said final comment three times. In fact, oh, go on. What 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 now? It, it was different categories. We had like no. the Chris category and no. the Williams what? category, and we had the Steve category. And besides which, Evelyn Coleman is in with Spanner's face when Matt keeps reading comments is why I'm here. So I had to read that one. You understand. No, right. We've gone too far. And to <laughs> quote John Luke Picard, the line is here and no further. He was talking about Borg, but I'm talking about the relentless assault of comments. Thank you, chat room. Thank you to Steve Amy, 
Chris Stevens at Chris at Chris on Racing. I knew this one on Twitter. Matt at MattPT55. You can be my Facebook friend. Uh, search for Richard Reddy on Facebook or follow me on Twitter at Spanners Ready. Thank you so much for keeping us company. We'll see you next Sunday for Joe Sayward and Matthew Carter in the shed. Until then, be brave because wounds heal, chicks dig scars, and glory lasts forever. This was Missed Apex. I feel like, Matt, you have taken the small license of comment of the week and you are increasingly expanding it until comment of the week is the whole show and then you're you're the host of welcome to comment of the week and then i'm just like your sidekick making comments on your comments and that's your plan and don't think i haven't noticed i i don't know what you're talking about that was no idea none whatsoever 20 minute segment there's a 20-minute comment of the week segment. Thank you very much. And there's Mark Greenow. There are four lights. That's true. There are there are four lights or weren't there. I can't remember which way, way you were. Oh, do you know what? I'm just I'm pressing stop because all of that was stupid. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.